0: Welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another incredible guest. He's a Georgetown University Law Center graduate and currently works as an associate professor of law for legal practice at Georgetown Law. He's held past positions as an associate at Williams and Connolly and as a law clerk at the U.S. Court of Appeals for Judge Robert Katzman. Finally, He's also the host of the How I Lawyer podcast. Super excited to have him on the podcast today for this wonderful crossover episode of Legal Podcast. Mr. Jonah Perlin, welcome to the podcast. How are we doing
1: today? Uh, I'm great, Nate. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I am just as excited as you are because this is such a wonderful crossover episode. We have the Legal
1: Podcast clashing together. I love that so much.
0: (laughs) But before we get started, Jonah can introduce yourself to the audience.
1: Sure. Yeah, you gave sort of some of my professional background, but uh, I'll I'll give it in in a little more color. So, um, again, my name is Jonah Perlin. My full time day job is I uh, teach at my alma mater, Georgetown University Law Center. Um, I've been there. I'm in year six of full time teaching. Uh, Before that, I was an associate at Williams & Connolly, which is a big law firm here in D.C., which is my hometown. Uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia, just on the other side of the river, and now I live sort of in D.C. proper. Um, Before that, I clerked for two incredible judges, one on the district court, which for people unfamiliar is the federal trial court, uh, and then another judge, as you mentioned, on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit up in New York City. Uh, And before that, I was previously at Williams & Connolly and then uh, at Georgetown So that's who I am sort of professionally. I started How I Lawyer three and a half years ago. Um, I imagine some people listening to this may already be familiar with it, but it's basically a podcast that tries to show what lawyers do, why they do it, and how they do it well. Um, I've interviewed about 130-something lawyers to to date in the last three years, and uh, I'm not stopping anytime soon. So sort of that's that's what I do every day. I'm also a dad. I have two young kids, uh, and yeah, that's a little about me.
0: I mean, first, I have to say congratulations on the two young kids. I know they're probably a little older than, you know, since they have been born, but I always like to congratulate people on accomplishments <laughs> in their life. Um, and I also saw that you also you had a live podcast at one point, mm-hmm. which is a which is a current dream of mine. I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of make it into a reality. So we'll sure. it really happens. Uh, but let's go back the wonderful year of 2007. I keep telling people how old I was, but I, I might stop doing that because I feel like I'm unintentionally offending people. No offense um, for me. I was four years old. Anyway, uh, you were at the University of Princeton. You studied religion and Jewish mm-hmm. studies. And then eventually you would end up at Georgetown Law in 2009. Two years later, you also took a master's at the
1: University of Chicago. So simply mm-hmm. put, Why'd you do it? Why'd you go to law school? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's the question I want everybody who's listening, who's thinking about going to law school to ask themselves. That said, and I say this a lot. So anybody who's heard me say this before, I apologize for hearing it again, but it means a lot to me. Careers, one of the things I've learned interviewing over 100 hours of talking to lawyers is that careers really only make sense looking backwards. They don't make sense looking forwards. Uh, So you can plan all you want, and that's great. And I encourage people to plan and not jump into things that they haven't actually thought about, and they can't see themselves doing two, three, 10, 20 years down the line. But the story only makes sense when you connect the dots backwards. And so for me, if I'm going backwards to connect those dots, why did I do it? Um, So I graduated college, as you said, in 2007, and I had a couple of different options. I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do. I'd originally gone to college uh, thinking I was going to go become a rabbi. My mom's a rabbi and I thought I was going to follow in the family business. And in my sophomore, junior year, I decided that that profession wasn't for me, Uh, which made me sort of go back to the drawing board as many people do in college many times uh, and ask questions like what interests me, what kinds of jobs might I like, what do I want to spend my days doing, what am I good at, all of those pieces. And one of those options was law school, but- I also thought maybe I'd get a PhD and maybe I'd teach. And so at that point, I decided I'm not going to do another educational degree right after law school. And I know not everybody has the uh, the ability to do that, but if you can build in a little bit of postgraduate time, I think it it's it really helps you decide what you want to do. And then once you decide what you want to do, it helps you succeed because you have that context of like, you know, just having a job. Uh, and I moved to Washington back. Back to Washington, DC, where I grew up, and I worked uh, in an organization that sort of works alongside Capitol Hill and got to do the politics thing for a year. Um, I took the LSAT. I don't know if I've ever told this story on a podcast, but I took the LSAT uh, during that job and had a like momentary freak out in the middle of the LSAT and like decided to cancel my score, which I don't even know if you can still do that, but like decided to cancel my score. So I never even figured out what the score from that LSAT was. And that put me sort of behind the eight ball in terms of timing because I had this one-year fellowship, but I probably wasn't going to have an LSAT in time to apply to law school. And I had always thought maybe I would go be a professor uh, in religion and get a PhD. So I said, you know what? Maybe I'm going to put off law school one more year. I found this amazing program at the University of Chicago Divinity School um, which is sort of a pre PhD program, but they do it. You can do it in a year. It's a really intense year. It was academically the hardest year of my life was the year I spent at the university of Chicago. Um, cause they're on the quarter system. So I did three quarters while I was there. And the nice part is if at the end of it, if I did it well and they liked me, there was a chance that I could stay and apply to, you know, apply to get a two-year master's and then ultimately apply to get a PhD. Um, and it gave me time to take the LSAT again. So I took the LSAT. I went to Chicago. I loved my year at Chicago. I really, it was the year I really learned how to write. And today I'm a, you know, i my, my day job is as a writing professor. Um, I couldn't do that without that year at Chicago, truly. But I also pretty quickly realized I didn't want to go get a PhD in religion. And I didn't want to sort of go that track. And so that's when law school was before me. I applied to a bunch of schools um, and got into some got in you know got rejected from more and ultimately ended up at Georgetown um which which turned out to be sort of the big change in my life and I, I've you know I left for a while but uh, my goal is to stay there as long as they'll have me um so yeah so that's how I decided to go to law school. I didn't know what I was gonna do that's like the crazy part is I went to law school and I was like here are the things I'm good at here are the things I'm like but I didn't know what I wanted to do and I sort of kept an open mind and figured it would I would go and it would make itself known. Uh, I'm not that sure it made itself known, um, but I really did fall in love with sort of the litigation-based classes. Um, I interned for a judge. I summered at a law firm, and that's when I decided to go into litigation. But that that professor academic that made me go to Chicago sort of came back out uh, as I was in practice, and, and that's where I ended up today. So I guess the last story I'll tell about going to law school is I thought maybe I'd want to do international law. I didn't know what international law was, but it sounded interesting. Uh, The international part, at least. I like to travel. I like to see the world. And ultimately, I went to Georgetown in part because it has an incredible international law program, still does to this day. And I ended up never taking an international law class in my three years at Georgetown. So you can make a lot of choices, uh, but life happens and you connect the dots sort of as you're going.
0: Yeah, I think I think an important point you made there is that when you got to law school, you had no idea what you wanted to do, and that's something I had no idea about um, prior to taking taking the LSAT. I always talk about the year before. uh, I I was kind of thinking about because I was sort of on track to graduate this year and then go straight into law school. I'm not doing that anymore, but uh i was on track to do that and i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do and i started really figuring like just like going on youtube typing in yeah podcasts and like just watching and consuming so much lawyer stuff actually a uh, for, uh, former guest robert simon he has uh, the justice podcast mm-hmm. on, and i watched him and then he came on my podcast which was pretty cool uh, that's amazing yeah he's but, a great guy too oh he's a, oh, amazing he's so good uh, but so I watched a ton of his videos and then another another guest, uh, Nick Grande, he actually currently goes to Georgetown Law School. And I was texting with him because he went to high school with my brother. He was on the basketball team. I knew him, a professional baseball player, actually. <laughs> but uh, so I'm texting him I'm like, hey, so like, what do you want to do? And he's like, oh, I don't know. And he was in his second year and I was like, what? <laughs> so it was like this totally mind blowing moment and just Hello. like, he doesn't even know. Uh, So I think that's such an important point to make, because it's such a myth, I guess, that people know what they want to do when they go to law school. And that's, that's simply just usually never the case. I think some Mm -hmm. people, you know, have some interest, they want to do litigation, or they want to do contracts. But I think from my experience on this podcast in 27 episodes, it seems that the experience of the job is what's most important, because you figure out what you're going to really do on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, and I would just add, there's there's a tension there, right? There's a tension with, I think sometimes people go to law school because they don't know what else to do, and it, and it has slightly uh, less arduous prerequisites than going to medical school, um, and, and my recommendation to people is always, don't go to law school just because you don't have anything else to do. That's not a good reason to go to law school, but I could not agree with you more, Nate, that- you don't need to know what you're going to do. You don't know need to know what kind of lawyer you're going to be before you start. The analog in sort of everyday life that I often use on my podcast is whenever you get, you know, hopefully someday this may happen to you. You know, I, I won't put it in your name, but uh, someday or many of your listeners may already have gotten engaged. And when you get engaged to be married, the first question, at least in my experience, that every single person asks you is, "When are you getting married?" where are you getting married and my answer when i did that when i when my wife and i became engaged was i don't know we just got engaged right and it's <laughs> like you don't know what you don't know until you actually sort of take that first step and so going to law school i think is is something that people should do and not take lightly especially given the extreme cost but at the same time don't be afraid that you don't know you 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 don't know what you don't know and ask And the other thing I'll I'll echo, and I told you I wasn't going to put on my podcast host persona, but one of the things that I love that you said, right, is that there's so much material out there to learn while you're deciding whether to go or once you get there. So your podcast is an example. My podcast is an example. You have people writing on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on other places. There's so much incredible uh, sort of asynchronous mentorship out there that you can get. And and it's important to go get it. And if if any of my sort of current lawyers are listening, if you don't already put it out there, do because it has incredible value to the future of our profession.
0: That that is so incredibly true. I love what you said there. There is so much information. I am a lover of the internet. Uh it's how I made this podcast. I went on Google and typed in how to start a podcast. Me too. And and, and I and I just went from there as simply as that. I watched a couple of videos. Like I don't who I don't know how to convert an mp4 to an mp3. Like I was like, what? So I just looked up a YouTube video and there was just some guy doing it. And I was like, Oh, look, there we go. Uh, right. So there, there really is just so much information out there. And it's, you know, the internet, it obviously, you know, in some cases, it could be it, it's a big blessing. It's also a big curse. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've caught myself scrolling on Instagram for too long. But I think at the end of the day, there's vast amounts of information for pretty much any industry that you want mm-hmm. to, get you know, legal. I, I love entrepreneurship. So I'm always listening to podcasts about that, listening to podcasts about business. And it's just, oh, I love it so much. There's so much, so much content, so much information. I can't get enough of it. Probably. But let's go to the first year of law school. Sure. 2009, you're at Georgetown Law. People say it's traumatic. People say it's
1: very intense. Some people love it. Some people hate it. How was it for you? Wow, it's funny because I because the cool part about being a law professor and I teach I teach mostly one else, <laughs> so I sort of get to relive one L year every single year as an occupational hazard. So I had one one L year myself, uh, and then I've had sort of six along with my students. But for me, when I started, because I had two years out of law school and I had done two really different things. One year I was really sort of a classic. Washington, Capitol Hill, low-paid staffer. Where I was, you know, I loved that year because I was really working, and I was working in an organization that gave me incredible amounts of responsibility from day one. And I built an incredible network of people. It's ultimately the year that I met the woman who would later become my wife. Um, that was an incredibly important year in my in my development as a person and as a professional. Then in year two, I basically lived in the library for nine months in Chicago. (laughs) I I lived in Chicago for nine months. And for anyone who's from Chicago or that part of the country, uh, you'll know what I mean. When I said I picked the wrong nine months out of the 12 to live there, I basically missed the Chicago summer. I got there in September and I left in the late May, um, which is not what I would recommend if that's what you're doing. But it didn't really matter because I was in the library the whole time. But I wrote so much. I studied so hard. And so when I went to law school, I sort of felt like I had the context of living on my own. And I had a group of friends in Washington, DC, which was incredibly valuable, but I had also studied, I had learned and taught the process to myself of how I studied and how I could really dig deep. Those two things helped me immeasurably in my first year of law school. I have no idea what it would have been like if I hadn't had that experience.
0: So I have to ask from that, what yeah. what were the sort of things that you were employing in your first year of law school mm-hmm. in terms of your your studying technique yeah right. and as well having a great support system around you?
1: How important was that to you as well? Yeah, two great and, and for me related questions. I think the word that, that you may have used or was sort of hinting at is this idea of process. And in order to get through my year at Chicago, where I think I wrote over 250 pages in nine months of academic writing in an area that I knew very little, I also had to pass a German language exam, um, despite having only taken up to first year college German. Um, In order to do that, I had to really learn how to do hard things for long periods of time. Um, And that sometimes just means sitting in a chair in the library for eight or nine hours and being able to have a plan. And what I learned was I could not, it wasn't like college in the sense that I couldn't just uh, cram for everything. I couldn't write every assignment the night before it was due. This What I was doing was just too complex and had too many pieces. So I became really obsessed with sort of how to build processes. And that was incredibly helpful when I got to law school because- I think the thing that 1Ls often don't realize is the people who are often the most successful are not necessarily the folks who spend the largest amount of time, the the highest number of hours in the library. It's the people who have a process and stick with it. And it's the people who are willing to tweak their process when things aren't working. So for example, one thing that I did in my first year, which I think helped me a lot, was I always focused on, is this activity going to help me not only in class, but also on the exam? And some people might say that's sort of you know transactional or that goes against the ethos of education. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people spend their first year in law school, at least their first semester in law school, being so scared of being ready for class that they don't leave any time to process what they learned in class. And so I spent far less time than many of my classmates reading in advance of class, but I spent a lot of time after class going through my reading notes, which were not that great because I didn't spend as much time and my class notes and really learning the material after it had been presented to me. Now, I know that's not the perfect strategy for everybody, but that strategy for me was incredible. Um, and, and And you sort of raised the question of community. One of the benefits of having that community is there was someone who was a few years ahead of me in the fellowship that I did, who was a 2L at Georgetown, who had done very well. And she sort of talked me through her process. I didn't sort of copy it whole cloth, but the fact that she talked to me about having a process was again, incredibly, incredibly valuable. And so you know, law school is hard, 1L is hard, but I tried to just lean into my process. And after the first semester, then I tweaked my process. I also had the benefit of the person I was dating who would later become my wife was a 2L. So she had just gone through (laughs) 1L at a different school in a different city. So that was a challenge, 100%. Um, So yeah, I, I really tried to build in process. And that's what I try to teach in my classrooms now. And it's one of the things I try to talk about on the podcast as well.
0: Yeah, I think I think those are some amazing points you made, especially the point of tweaking your process and hundred uh, percent. Sort of that that brings me back to sort of that makes me think of Thomas Edison, uh, and the way that he p- puts. The, I can't believe I remember this, but uh, the way that he did he you know did his inventions was that. When something didn't work, he didn't just throw the whole thing out. He changed a little part of it and then tried it again, Mm -hmm. tried it again. I know uh, the the creator of the Dyson vacuum also did that as well. I think he had over 5,000 different prototypes for the Dyson vacuum. It was because he would change a little part because you have to see what sort of the root of what's causing the problem to be able to assess what needs to be tweaked. So I thought that was an amazing point to be made. Uh, and obviously the person you were dating that helps a lot I, th- that that that's amazing to me right now that does it does a good find uh yes. <laughs> for many it, reasons but yes
1: for that <laughs> as well
0: for the academic aspect it, it it clearly helped a lot uh but i think building processes is something i've never heard before actually and is mm-hmm. a new word for me currently i just wrote it down i always write everything down yeah. um, but I, I think it's important to to put that out there as well. I guess I do have a little bit of a studying process that I have right now in college. I don't, It definitely won't translate to the law school. Well, I don't know. Um, I haven't found out yet. Right, exactly. Uh, but I think going, going a little bit further in time, you had interned for the Honorable Judge Gladys Kessler and mm-hmm. then summer associate at Williams and Connolly, which you would eventually work at as an associate after law school. Can you talk about
1: those experiences? Did you love, did you hate them? What'd you learn? Sure. Well, it's the right question to ask in terms of, did you love, did you hate them? What did you learn? Right? So I have my one else right now are many of them are in the process of finding that first summer job. And my advice to those folks is find an opportunity that will tell you either best case scenario. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life or second best case scenario, I never want to do this again, (laughs) right? Because you learn from all those experiences. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I don't even remember who told me, like, maybe you can go intern for a judge, but that was an incredibly valuable experience to me. Um, And what what I was able to see was not just sort of what I had learned in my first year of law school, which is sort of the nuts and bolts of the law itself, but I saw what it meant to actually be a in the litigation process in a way that was far more sophisticated than what you see on I don't even think suits was on yet just to date myself a little bit but what was on suits we used to say what was on law and order uh, or what my what my parents generation might have said what's on Perry Mason whatever it is you get to see what it's really like and so that's what that first summer really helped me figure out was yeah this seems like this seems not only like something I would enjoy because I like it but it also fit my natural skill set Right. It was writing focused. It was short-term deadlines. And the greatest part about being an intern for a court, as opposed to being a litigator, which I later did, is when you're a litigator, maybe you're working on a couple of cases at a time. Right. When you're in court, you might have or if working for a judge, you might have 90 active cases that are at different stages. And it's why I tell people if you can intern for a judge or even better, clerk for a judge for a year, you can get. 10 years of experience in litigation in that one year because you're getting the experience across a whole host of matters. As opposed to, I mean, I was an associate at a big law firm for a total of, I don't know, probably just under four years, if I do the math right. And you don't get every experience in four years. But one year on the district court, you get every experience, you just don't get it for every single case. Um, and so I was pretty sure after that first summer that I wanted to go work at a big law firm to do litigation. I didn't even know what big law was when I got to law school, but it seemed like the right place. And people were saying, you know, my mentors were saying, my professors were saying, this would be a great place to learn, even if you don't end up doing that for the rest of your life. Um, And I remember going into my interviews for law firms and the the whole process is crazy. I'm happy to talk about the process, although maybe it's changed since I did it. but you do these 20-minute like screening interviews, and at that time, it was in hotel rooms, right? So they rented out like a big hotel near Georgetown Law, and each firm or each firm had one or two rooms. And like in some cases, they took out the beds. In other cases, the beds were just like against the back wall. And they had a chair outside and either one or two people inside, and you'd go talk for 20 minutes, and then that would be enough to either tell you, yeah, come visit our office or not. That was the sort of process. And you'd do like 20 of those in a day. And to a person, every single person asked me first, well, first question was like, why do you want to work at our law firm? Second question was, tell me about your summer with the judge, right? Remember, I had just done that, right? So I had a whole life of deciding I wanted to be a lawyer. And the thing they were most curious about was the experience that I had just had. And what I, I take actually a lot of, a lot away from that. But one of the things that it, that I remind my students is, Every experience that you get allows you to translate to what your next experience might be. So the worst answer to that question is, well, I went to a few trials and I worked on a few motions, right? What? That's not a good answer to that question. That just tells you what you did, right? But what they're really asking you is, what did you learn about either the law or about yourself that will translate to this job that by definition you've never had before? And so- Once I was talking about what I enjoyed and actually some of the things that I didn't like as much or that talked about some of the lawyers that I thought were less successful, (laughs) that was a much more robust conversation. And I felt like, yeah, you know. This is something I could see myself doing. Um, And then the second summer, I just built on those experiences. And then I was lucky enough um, to get an offer to come back and then ultimately clerk and then come back again. So I had three first days at Williams & Connolly, summer associate right after graduation and then after my clerkships, um, and then only left because I found my dream job, uh, which is what I do today.
0: Yeah, I think you made uh, many, many, many amazing points and really important points because something I like to focus on on the podcast always is the positive and negative experiences that people have throughout their career and their journey. Because it really does tell you if you want to do something or not. And, and and it goes back to sort of finding out what you want to do with the, with the law in terms of your career, your professional career. And that will really draw you to certain things that, okay, yeah, maybe I don't want to, you know, it was a good learning experience, but I learned not to do this. And I learned mm-hmm. to actually pursue this. To do that, I think it's crazy that they're having job interviews in the hotel as well. I um, think but-
1: that's changing. I think that's changing. If I'm not, but it definitely changed during COVID, and I think it's changing in general. But yeah, it was but the whole the whole thing was quite bizarre. Um, it was very bizarre, and I'm just glad. I I I'm hoping it's changing. I'll just say that
0: yeah because that that sounds that's like not scary, but it's like yeah, it's a little it's,
1: I think it's just I think it was just creepy is probably the best word for it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was
0: gonna say it. I didn't want to say it, but <laughs> I,
1: I could say it it's okay
0: <laughs> um so what what I asked I asked from now because obviously you enjoy writing you you're a legal writing professor mm-hmm. right now um but I would assume that that sort of talent and skill did not happen overnight. And something I love to talk about on this podcast is skills and the fact that they're very malleable and that mm-hmm. you you can formulate any skill you want you just have to put some time into it. So what what sort of things that did you do to improve your writing skills and you know what are sort of some tips and tricks that you have for people to improve their writing skills?
1: Yeah, so I'll take I'll take those in two parts because there's something I think a lot about as a writing professor, you know, full time, and because I work with students who come in with very different writing backgrounds, um, and very different backgrounds in the English language, even more broadly. Um, You know, for me, I think the and we sort of already talked about it, but I wanna wanna shout it back out: the fact that I spent a year learning how to write like a religion academic was one of the greatest experiences for me to become a legal writer in two ways. One, it just put me through the reps, right? Because so much of writing, not to go back to process, but so much of writing is about your writing process and your ability to uh, understand the purpose of the document and the audience for that document and how you're best going to convey information given that purpose and that audience. That's what writing is. And so doing it in another area was incredibly helpful because then I had the meta skill of being able to be like, okay, how did I learn how to do this in this discipline or what we call a genre of communication, right? And I just took legal writing as yet another genre that I had to learn, but I had already learned a brand new genre the year before. So I felt like I was like a step ahead because I understood I couldn't just show up and use my my college senior level writing, even though I had done a ton of writing in undergrad. So that's one thing. Um, in terms of like tips and tricks on how to get better at writing, I mean, I wish I had the magic bullet. If I did, people would be banging down my door to take my class. Um, the, the, the three things I would say to somebody who's struggling and people ask me this a lot, you know, I'm struggling with either writing or legal writing. Um, the first is really to focus. Don't just, just don't just say, I struggle with writing, figure out what you're actually struggling with. Are you struggling with getting words on a page? Are you struggling with your audience's expectations of what words show up on that page? Are you struggling with distraction? There's so much distraction in the world that I think some people just struggle because they're too distracted, right? Um, And so figuring out what you're struggling with is is number one. Number two is doing as much writing as you can, right? Because writing like any other skill, right? I am not a gifted artist in any way or gifted athlete in any way, but- (laughs) If you ask artists and athletes how they get better, they get better by practicing and they get better by failing and they get better by failing quickly as often as humanly possible. And so that's how I sort of set up my writing classroom is I try to have my students write small bits all throughout the semester because that gives them more reps before they come into a bigger project. So that's number two. And number three is reading writing, not reading about writing, although I do that. That's sort of a guilty pleasure of mine is reading books about writing. Um, That's probably why I'm in the right profession. But (laughs) you need to understand what the expectations of your readers are. And the best way to do that is to put yourself in your reader's shoes. Um, And so that I think is also really, really important is reading good writing, um, and you know some people I think would say good writing writ large. Um, I think reading good writing in the area in which you're practicing is really important so that's why textbooks I think are helpful because they give you writing that you can read um and to just be very very discerning about what you're reading so that you you can build your writing skill but number one is understand what your struggles are number two is do it as many times as you can and number three is try to write uh, try to read about it read people who are doing it right.
0: Jonah, I feel like you've talked about that many times in your life. Um, <laughs> You're not the, wrong. <laughs> it sounded like that wasn't the first time you brought it off. Those, those three tips checked. <laughs> um well it's an occupational hazard, I guess. <laughs> uh but I think I think the fact of you know finding out finding that root cause, going back to sort of the, the Edison example. Yeah. You know, tweaking, retweaking, just doing it over and over again in that ties into getting your reps in I yeah. always managed to talk about the gym on this podcast I love going to the gym and that is so you literally get your reps in uh, yeah and and for me when I first went to the gym and, and sort of realizing that like holy like, holy crap like like when they mean get your reps in they really mean it and and I I found that that sort of knowledge that sort of principle is just so transferable across literally anything that you're doing mm-hmm. in life and it was just I was like wow um
1: can I, I add one, can I add one point, Nate, on that? Because I Absolutely. think I just want to riff on that real fast, because I think you're right. I think the gym example, although I should be going more on myself, is a good <laughs> one. The other thing that 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 I think is important to remember is sometimes people will say, but I'm new at this, but I don't know how to do this. This is my first rep to sort of extend the metaphor. And what I like to remind my students, and frankly, remind myself sometimes, is that you have past experiences that count as reps, They may not be the exact exercise, again, to continue the metaphor, or the exact um, machine that you're doing, but you have transferable skills. So, for example, I have students, some students who are science and math students in college, and they come and they come to my office the first week and they say, Professor, like all these other students have been writing theses, they write articles, they were on their student newspaper, they know how to write. Like, how could I possibly keep up? And my answer is with them is yes, they have more experience in writing. I'm, you know, we're on audio, audio, so you can see my scare quotes, just writing, right? But what you have experience in, which is incredibly valuable to legal writing, is proving a premise from a generally applicable rule, right? There's not that much difference between legal writing and a geometry proof. And so, yes, your words may come more slowly. Yes, you may struggle more with writing process. But let me tell you, my humanities majors are going to struggle a lot more where they can't just make an argument by saying, I think, right? Right? You're used to not making arguments from I think. You're used to saying, here's the rule. Here are the facts before us. And here's how we apply those facts to the rule. That's on one foot legal reasoning. So you've done that before. So my remi- my reminder is whatever experiences you've had Right. Ask yourself: Are they transferable, and how can I count them as reps? And how can I lean on them when I'm le- learning a new skill?
0: Be- beautifully said, honestly. I've I've never looked at it in in that sort of way, or or put it in a lot. La- uh, was able for myself to put it into words like mm-hmm. that because I think you said it perfectly. That many skills and many things that we do with throughout our life can be transferable to anything else that we do. Those reps are still existent. And also on your third point reading good writing. That yeah. all brings me back to um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, who's obviously a very famous uh, author. And he used to write, he wrote like The Great Gatsby uh, like 50 times. So he f- so he knew how it felt to write a really
1: good novel. And right, I think- yeah. That, that copy, I forget what it was called, not copywriting, some other word, but basically where they would copy books, right? To get the feeling of what it must've been like for F. Scott Fitzgerald to write The Great Gatsby. And I, I think that's I. I almost wish we did more of that in legal writing. That's a great idea.
0: Yeah, I, it always brings me back. That it always sticks with me because I heard that one time. Uh, I think it, when did when I hear it? I heard it on the My First Million podcast, which mm-hmm. I love very much. Uh, but Sam Parr, he's a big copywriter. And um he he kind of talked about how he did that. He would go through, you know, these poems and and these and these different books and copyright them. And he got it from Hunter S. Thompson, who wrote the great uh, you know, would rewrite the Great Gatsby. Yeah, I, I always find that absolutely fantastic. Now you you had two law clerkships back to back. You worked for the Honorable Judge Alan Siegel Huville. did I say that right? Huvel, Huvel, Huval. You vow, there we go. At the US District Court in the District of Columbia. And then you clerked for Judge Robert Katzman. Uh I don't have I don't have the court there. On but- the second
1: circuit in New York City. Yep. Second. Ser- oh, wow. That's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Now you got to talk about it. So how was the experience? Did you love? Did you hate it? What'd you learn? And also I need you to talk about the feeling of working in New York city and being around the big buildings and having that
1: sort of like suits persona. I got to <laughs> Uh, well, let me start, let me start by answering the clerkship part. Then I'll talk to you about New York briefly. I mean, for me, um, my clerkships were transformative to me as a professional and as a person, um, working for two exceptional judges, um, and not just exceptional lawyers, which they were, but exceptional judges who cared deeply about the practice of law and cared deeply about the people who are part of that practice, um, you know, is one of the most important, if not the most important, influence on what what I do and what I try to teach my students. Um, I sort of said earlier that doing a clerkship is has the sort of feeling of being able to do ten years of Law practice in one. Um, The other benefit of doing a clerkship is, you know, especially if you're a litigator, your whole goal in life is to convince judges, like to get in their brain and convince them. There is no better practice. There are no better reps for that than to be like a judge's brain or a judge's brain helper, right, for a year. Um, and in my case, for two years, um, for those that don't know the difference, right, the district court is the trial court. So that's the court you think about with a criminal case. Uh, if a federal and here in D.C., um, it's a little more complicated. But generally speaking, right, federal crimes go to federal court. So there's the criminal aspect. But a lot of the federal docket is actually civil, two businesses suing pe- each other, uh, someone suing their uh, employer for an employment discrimination action. All that fits into sort of the the civil bubble. Um that's incredibly fast paced. We had maybe a hundred cases at any given time. Things are moving. Uh, we 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 only did a couple trials. There are there actually aren't that many federal trials anymore. So we probably did, I don't know, a handful of trials in the year I was there. Uh, probably wrote, I don't know, I'm just guessing maybe drafted 40, 40 or so opinions from many of them were only one page to some quite lengthy. Um, but ultimately it's you're you're working for the judge. So when I say draft, I mean draft, right? My judge is the one who signs right in the trial court judge chivel when i worked for her like she's the one that was confirmed by the senate not me and so <laughs> she really had control of all of those decisions we were there to just support um but we got we we got so much out of that experience court of appeals by contrast right is your classic uh pre supreme court court of appeals in the federal system uh i once heard a judge who's now on the DC Court of Appeal, uh, the DC circuit. So the federal court of appeals here in DC, uh, Judge Wilkins was on the district court, on the trial court when I was there. And he said the job of a district court judge is to get an answer. The job of the appeals court judge is to get the answer right. Uh, and at the time he was a trial court judge. Now he's a court of appeals judge. Um, and so getting that experience, having already done a trial court clerkship, to then go and and look at trial court decisions and see if they were correctly decided um, was incredibly valuable. I also think I had a greater appreciation for what it's like to make a trial court decision because I had done it. So I think the danger sometimes is people come in after law school and they're like, oh, that judge below didn't know what they were talking about. And it's like, I have incredible respect for trial court judges and what they do, even when ultimately on some legal question, you and a panel of your colleagues think a, a different outcome is the right outcome. So that was my experience in those two courts. Um, It was great to be in D.C. You know, I mentioned earlier I'm from this area. I have a you know great support system here. Um, The D.C. District Court is an incredible court just because of the kinds of cases they hear. but I did go to New York for the year. That was my one year in New York City in the in the Big Apple. Um, it was a great year for many reasons. One, I worked for an incredible judge who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but whose who's legacy lives on in so many ways uh, in his law clerks, in all the work that he did. Um, he, he was an incredible human being and an incredible jurist. Um, but I also, that was the year before we had our first kid. So we had our first child in June of my clerkship year. So I had been there for about nine months. And so we really got to live it up and explore the city that that neither of us, neither my wife nor I had ever lived in uh, for any extended period of time and got to spend time with our community there. And, you know, as you said, the big buildings, as a guy from D.C. who then worked in D.C., the fact that I lived on the 25th floor, and uh, I'm trying to remember what floor Chambers was on. It was in the 20s. That concept just was so foreign to me um, and so so incredibly exciting and fast-paced. Um, I don't think it would have been a good fit for me long-term, so we moved back to DC where I live now, but it, it's a year that I will never forget because it was it was so fun, exciting, and illuminating. Yeah, I, I I know
0: New York City very well I'm from Long Island myself so I've been to the city many times in my life I love it so much I I like I said the big buildings it always gets me yeah it's looking like the tallest building and I'm like that's my office up there I know it will be there uh so I I'm I'm just enthralled by the sort of the environment the fast pace everything's moving so quickly the the cars are honking forever <laughs> yeah and yep. it's just the whole environment, like uh, the vibe, I just love the vibe that it gives off. It,
1: it, yeah, there's incredible vibrancy. I mean, I took the I took the subway down from the Upper East <laughs> Side every morning down to uh, the courthouse, which is by City Hall. And, and my my memories, like you know how it how it how it felt being you know crammed in the train, <laughs> and the and the little drips of water that you'd get from the top of the station. Like I remember all those things so so well. Um, the other fun the other fun story I guess I should tell about that was uh, I was working with mostly people who either were from New York or spent a lot of had been in New York for a long time. And so for me, it was sort of like, you know, when Mark Twain went on his great journey across the world, like I was this guy from DC. So classic example, I would get to work by, like, seven 45, eight o'clock, New Yorker, even New York lawyers don't roll in till much later, but then they stay so much later. And I was like, this is so different than my little hometown of Washington, DC, but it was really fun. And I think it was really important for me in my professional life to like, try something and be somewhere else. And, um, even though I don't live there now, I'll always remember that year.
0: I, I, I always have to ask about the big city experience because I haven't sure. myself. I've only, you know, temporarily been there for a little yeah. bit, I um, actually went I went to the I went to Times Square for, for the New Year's never doing that again. Yeah, uh, no. But but I got you know, I got a little police escort. You know, we got in there a little later. It was very nice. It was an amazing experience, but it's a one time thing. I get crossed off my bucket list and it stays crossed off. Amen. Um But then you start. Uh, well, let me see. Let me see. Associate professor at Georgetown Law. You teach mainly one else. Are you like the teacher from the movies? I have to ask. Are You're you cold calling like crazy. Are you sticking it to people for the whole hour? What 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 kind of, and and also talk about your experience teaching? I sure. love it so much. Yeah. You can tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think it's important to share a little bit about how I got into the classroom, right? So as you could tell from having spoken about my path, you know, the teaching part was always in the background. I never thought I'd actually do it. Um, and even when I left law school, I thought, man, that would be cool someday to teach something, but I never thought that was what was going to happen. Um, and I had a conversation with one of my closest friends from law school, who's still one of my closest friends today. Um, and he was adjunct, he was adjuncting. So he was teaching a class while he was practicing at Georgetown, a class on for judicial law clerks. So it was sort of like a third year, third, third year, fourth year, uh, night class for people who are going into clerkships. And I said, Man, that sounds awesome. I would love to do that. Nothing came of it. Two years later, that same friend of mine gets a clerkship on the United States Supreme Court. Oh, wow. And he calls me up and he says, Great news. I got a clerkship on the United States Supreme Court. I was like, That is great news. Right? <laughs> the crazy part though is I'm scheduled to teach next fall this class and I can't teach it anymore. Cause I can't teach while I'm working at the court and I put your name in, or I will put, I forgot if he told me I'll put your name in, or I'd already put your name in if you want to do it. And I, I jumped at the opportunity, but like, it was such a good reminder. Had we not had that conversation two years earlier and had he not remembered, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Professionally, that moment was one of those moments looking backwards that fundamentally changed my life because he did me a favor of listening And helping grease the wheels so that I could get into this position. I came as an adjunct. It was the worst possible time personally because we had a, I don't know how old she was, about a two-year-old at home and we had another one on the way. Um, And I was working in crazy, crazy hours because I was sort of a mid-level associate at a big law firm. But I said, I have to try this. And within two or three classes, I said to my wife, I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't think I was a bad associate at a law firm. I think I was, I don't think I was the greatest, but I think it was okay. You can ask my former bosses, they'll tell you. <laughs> um, but I had found the thing that I thought fit, right? Fit my interest, fit my skill set, um, and fit the way I wanted to be. And I didn't really want to teach sort of traditional podium style doctrinal classes. Um, I really loved teaching legal practice, legal writing. And so I reached out to my former legal writing professor, who's now my colleague uh, and friend. Uh, and I said, I want to do this. Like, I've been adjuncting. I want to find a way to do this. And I was right place at right time. They were hiring a visiting position. So it had only one year. I didn't know if it was going to work out. I, there was a chance that it wasn't going to work out and I was going to have to go back to private practice. Um, but that's how I got into the classroom. You then asked me what kind of professor I am. Um, I... I am not, I don't think you can ask my students, but I am not. <laughs> I, I don't believe that for the class that I teach and for the way that I teach it, I do not believe that scaring people is the way to teach them how to learn. Um, but I what I do believe fundamentally in terms of teaching, especially teaching a practice-based class, is that people need to be bought in or they need to buy in to the process. They need to buy into the fact that they can't just take notes in my class and write great documents. They have to practice. How much time they put in on their documents outside of class is arguably more important than how much focus they have in my hour or two that I have with them uh, any given day or any given week. Um, That said, the way I try to do this is I bring an incredible amount of energy to the classroom. I think it's very easy for a writing class to get boring really fast, and it's my duty to my students to come and bring my whole self to the classroom. So that's what I try to do. Um, I do call on people. So I do traditionally cold call people. I call on people without them necessarily raising their hand, but I might get to half my class in one hour, and I try not to ask hard questions. The reason I'm calling on them, the pedagogy behind it, the the teaching practice behind it is it keeps them engaged and keeps them excited and keeps them on their toes, but never should someone leave my classroom feeling like they weren't heard or that I was out to get them. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I bring that a lot from my judge that I worked for, Judge Katzman in New York, uh, the the one who unfortunately passed away several years ago. He told his clerks, he told me and, and all of his clerks, I think, that one of the things he didn't want litigants, people who came to the second circuit, he wanted to make sure that everybody felt heard. That was the point of the experience, even the ones who were going to lose. And I have taken that to be one of my sort of core tenets of how I teach is I want my students to feel heard and feel like I care, even if I have to give them a bad grade, or even if I have to tell them that's not the right answer, that they they should feel affirmed as human beings in that process. And that's not always easy, but that's 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 my North Star when it comes to the classroom.
0: Well, Jonah, I'll be honest. I want you to be my teacher one day. <laughs>
1: uh, it sounds like a good time. I mean- We uh, try. We try. I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you the other funny story about teaching. So during COVID, I had to teach online. And we actually moved across the country for four months to live with my parents and my brother's family in Los Angeles. And unfortunately, I'd already had my class schedule. So I was teaching at 8.30 or 9 a.m. on the East Coast, but I was living in the West Coast. So it was 6 a.m. when I was teaching my legal writing class on Zoom. And- my wife would often come after class, I'd like teach from six to eight and then have my second or third cup of coffee. And my wife would often say to me in those moments, wow, you have a lot of energy for legal writing at six o'clock in the morning. And I was like, if I don't have the energy, then I can't demand energy from everybody else. So 100% bring bring the energy.
0: Yeah, that that's honestly such like an important point because I think it's something that I've especially learned one of the most important lessons I've ever learned in my life is you know as, as a young person, uh, you know, I don't know anything. I really have no knowledge. I have no experiences in the world, no real experiences, at least. And the only thing that, you know, we young people have is energy. And it's my focus every single day in my life that everyone I interact with, I bring 100% energy. I Can't bring you anything of of value, maybe in terms of knowledge or in terms of ways that I could help you, but I'll bring you energy. I'll try to put a smile on your face. And clearly, that's something you employ in your classroom. And I think that's just amazing because you got to keep it engaging. You got one of my favorite teachers ever, uh, adjunct professor Matthew Kirk. That is the one thing he did for me and for the classroom. He brought the energy every day. Mm -hmm. He He was excited to be there. He was excited to talk about the things, even even if they're so terribly boring, like, you know, we used to read, like, Robert Dahl, and, like, That stuff would just get so boring and it'd be going on. But he'd bring the energy. He'd keep me involved. I'd be writing notes the whole time. I never write notes in class. So it it was like one of those things that kind of taught me, especially uh, talking to him a lot. Like he's going to be, I I mean, um, unless I have a better teacher after that, uh, he's definitely one of my favorite teachers ever. Just for the pure fact that he brought the energy, he kept it exciting, he kept it engaging. And I think it's just such an important point. You got to bring the energy every day. Because you know some people don't, but it's totally okay. You bring the mm-hmm. enthusiasm because that's all I really have. That's all I have to offer.
1: Well, don't don't sell yourself short. I'm sure you have more to <laughs> offer than that. But I and and I will say it's hard. Like it's easy to say bring the energy. It's hard, right? And 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 you know some days are going to be good days and some days are going to be bad days. I, I don't know if uh, you know you've dropped a couple of really great uh, books, names, podcasts. Um, I'll add one that I follow, which is this guy named Ali Abdal. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's a, uh, he's a former doctor. I guess he's still a doctor from the United Kingdom who now sort of has an incredibly prolific YouTube channel that really speaks to productivity and students and all of those things, which is sort of my guilty pleasures. And um, I was just, I don't remember whether it was in his new book or on one of his recent videos, but he talked about when he was a young doctor and he came into the ER and the ER was, the waiting room was full and he spent his whole day. He said, I skipped lunch. I tried to get through people as fast as I could. And I left that night, 13 hours later. And the waiting room was completely full. (laughs) And so the next day I said, I'm going to do way better. I'm going to come in. I'm going to triage. I'm going to next night, The waiting room is more full than when he got there. And what one of the senior doctors said to him later was the waiting room is always going to be full, right? So all you, you can't control that. All you can control is that you do the best you can in the time you have. And that is, I literally just heard this like a week or two ago, but it's really stuck with me and is a good message. I think for everyone is the waiting room is always going to be full. And so just bring do do the best you can, and guess what? If you don't have a good day, that's fine. We're human beings. Tomorrow could be a good day because the waiting room is still full. What, well, well,
0: Jonah? You're getting a little philosophical. I, well, I'm trying to
1: get into your, uh, into. I, I shouldn't go too far into your area of expertise. I'm
0: trying Nick. to pull it out of me right now. I, yeah, I, right. You know, I'm resisting, um, but. But I, I'd have to say from that, you talk about, you know, books. I see the books behind you. Uh, you have a wonderful two bookshelves. I hope to have that myself. I only have a crate right now. You'll um, get
1: there. You'll um, get there.
0: I know. I know. I'm building up, but let, let's let's do it official on the Lawyers in the Making podcast. What are Jonah Perlin's book recommendations? Doesn't have
1: to be about the law. It could just be mm. some of my favorite books you've ever read. Wow. Now that's a hard question. <laughs> I love that question, and it's maybe one I should take from my own um, for my own podcast. That's you amazing. Should. Well, let me—I mean, given your audience, I, you know, I know you said it doesn't have to be legal books, but I think I think talking about some some books that at least touch on the law are really really helpful. Um, you know, if you want to get better at legal writing, I'll tell you my favorite legal writing textbook. So this maybe doesn't your answer. My favorite legal writing textbook. Um, and I have several colleagues who have written incredible legal writing textbooks. There's great ones out there. There's some actually some really good new textbooks um, coming out. But the Complete Legal Writer uh, is my favorite legal writing textbook. I don't actually use it in my class because I it's a little it has it's very detailed, and I like to teach sort of more generally. Um, but the Complete Legal Writer I think is an incredible book because it doesn't just teach you how to write, and like a lawyer, it teaches you this idea of thinking about what it means to identify a purpose and audience of a particular genre and, uh, do that. So I think that's my favorite legal writing textbook. Second book I'll say, which is not legal writing, uh, is by a professor at Georgetown law. sorry. At Georgetown university who I have never met teaches in the computer science department, a guy named Cal Newport called deep, called deep Deep Work. work. Um, And if you haven't read deep work, like I've read, I think I've read it five times Uh, and I also have it on my, I also have it on my phone. So sometimes I'll just listen to it. Um, But basically high level Newport's thesis is that the difference between people who are going to be sort of the most successful and get the most out of life um, professionally and those who are not is the ability to have a deep work process and to build deep work into their life. And what is deep work? Deep work is the ability to focus on hard things for long periods of time. Um and he has tons of examples. It's also incredibly well written. um and I've been reading Cal Newport stuff. He wrote books about like how to do well in high school that I read when I was in college because I thought his writing and his his tips were so helpful so I would I would say deep work is um another really important book for my sort of for my life. I'm trying to think what's another good book These are great questions. I'll tell you the other book I'll give you a third uh, which is not one of like you know, my favorite books of all time but If you're interested in, as a lot of people are, uh, privacy in today's age, I just read a great book that is a big part of my forthcoming uh, law review article called Breached. And it's by two law professors who basically talk about why the approaches we have in society and in regulation to how we protect people's information um, are completely backwards. And- to talk about two law professors who can write an incredible book that is, I think, engaging for anyone. Um, that's a book that I recently read that not only does the subject matter interest me, and I think the thesis is incredible, but is incredibly well-written. And if you don't know if you're going to like law school or like law, if you read Breached, that might be a good sense that this is something you want to dig deeper. So I'll, I'll stop there.
0: Yeah, I, I'd have to say this, this is the f- I think this third or fourth time Cal Newport has come up on the podcast. There I, you go. I always ask for the book recommendations. I'm am a very big reader, so I I always collect it. You know, get get my information, get all the books, and then go on Amazon, put it on my cart. Yep. Um, but I and I did know Ali Abdal as well. I actually knew Ali Abdal before I knew Cal Newport. There you go. Um, well,
1: and they run in sort of similar circles, I think.
0: Uh, yeah, it was, it was the My First Million podcast. Ali Abdul was on there. He talked about how he grew his YouTube channel mm-hmm. and sort of the what he does on there, the productivity tips. And then Ernie Sevenson, which I believe was episode sixteen or seventeen, he was a guest on the podcast. He talked about Cal Newport for the first time. So I started mm-hmm. listening to his podcast. Deep. Podcast is great. Deep questions is great. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. And I although have-
1: he although he will, I will say. Uh, Professor Newport, in case I ever meet him, which I'm kind of a fan guy, I'd love to meet him. But um, (laughs) he, as a fellow Georgetown member of the faculty who podcasts, Cal, if you're listening, I'd love to hang out sometime. (laughs) Um, But uh, one of the things that he sometimes does is he sort of says, all of these tips work unless you're a lawyer, which I always think is sort of a very funny uh, thing to think about because I think a lot of lawyers actually listen to him and learn from him. Um, But a lot of his Focus is on how to find more value from shorter periods of time, and he often likes to contrast that with lawyers who bill on the billable hour, meaning they get paid by how many hours they work. And so there's a tension there for it, lawyers being uh, adherents of Cal Newport. But I, I I don't always agree with everything he says, but ultimately I think he he is probably the person that um that that has changed the way I approach my work more than anybody else.
0: Uh, I I couldn't agree more with that. But now we're down to the last three questions. First sure. question, which I I I always talk about how I used to call it a weird question, and then I get a little nervous before asking it. But what are the sorts of things that you consume, not food, consume on a daily basis? Either that be through social media, maybe some <clears throat> like some of your favorite content creators, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Reddit. Uh, what's crossing the transom of Jonah's mind on a daily <laughs> basis?
1: Uh, that's a great question. That's changed a lot for me, um, over the course of my career. And frankly, more recently, I was very active for several years on Twitter now, X, whatever the kids are calling it. Um, and I've, I've largely left that, that platform for lots of different reasons. And a lot of the people who I was friends with from that platform, people I call my prop, my pocket friends, um, have left. So I, I, you know, it's not the same. I I've moved a lot of the, um, a lot of my public content consumption over to LinkedIn. Um, I think there are some great lawyers working there. I've actually, you know, I don't know that this would be popular among law professors, but I think one great or one one great thing about law professors being on LinkedIn is it's an easy way for us to stay connected to the practice of law and the practitioner experts on law. Um, and so, I definitely have a whole host of people that I follow there. Some you've had on the podcast. Um, some, many of them I've had on my podcast as well. Um, happy to give you a list of those (laughs) folks, but, but LinkedIn has become a big part of my sort of content consumption. Um, ironically, I'm not a big podcast listener, despite the fact that I have my own (laughs) podcast, but I do, I am a faithful listener of, um, deep questions, which is Cal Newport's podcast. Um, I really like this podcast called creator science, which is by a guy named Jay Klaus, Um, Jay is sort of who I learned to podcast from. And again, not my professional area. There are no lawyers. I don't, I think I might be the only law professor who listens to Jay Class, but that's something that's interesting to me is sort of the creation of content. Cause I actually think lawyers are content creators. That's sort of a side point. Um, we create content for a living. We're also professional writers. And so we can learn a lot from people who create content in other areas for other audiences. Um, so that's definitely part of it. Um, I'm usually reading or listening to a mystery on the side. That's sort of my my guilty pleasure. Um, and I my wife and I watch a lot of British mystery television. That is what we do uh, when we don't have some other activity and when the kids are in bed. So I definitely consume probably a little too much British mystery. Um, what else? And then I guess the last thing that fits into that consumption is... Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm lucky that I get to work with incredible students. And so every single day I'm communicating with one of my students or a student from somewhere about something. Um, and that's one of the great parts about the podcast is at least once a week, I'm talking with a practitioner. Um, sometimes it's more than once a week to share that information with my students. And so that's also part of my, my media diet as I think Probably Cal Newport coined that term because I don't know who else did, but it sounds right. Uh, But that's what's in my media diet.
0: Yeah, so you you answered a little bit of the next question, sure. But you know, you're always doing. You're a law professor. You're always teaching classes, communicating with students. But what does an ideal Friday
1: night and Sunday morning look for Jonah? Well, if anybody's listening who's a parent, my my, I'll tell you what my Friday night and Saturday and Sunday morning look like, and then you can sort of see how much it, being a parent is the key to that. Um, so I'm, I, as I mentioned, I was thinking about becoming a rabbi. I'm Jewish. So Friday night for us is family time, 100%. It's our, our Sabbath time. Um, and so that means either we have sh- uh, a Shabbat dinner at our home uh, or at a home of friends, every single Friday or we're at our synagogue, which is a community that I'm very active in and and a part of that's how we spend our Friday nights. Frankly, that's how I've spent my Friday nights since I was a, since I was a, (laughs) as long as I can remember, because my mom worked on Friday nights. So I went to temple with her, um, every Friday night. And then, uh, now my Friday nights are basically family time and Shabbat. And for me, that's, that is incredibly grounding. I mean, we're talking on a Friday afternoon and, you know, I already know that that's coming to me in a few hours and I cannot look forward to it more. That is a huge part of my life. Um, one of the greatest, we haven't talked about it much, but one of the greatest parts about the job that I have is I can do things I love and care about, but I spend an incredible amount of time with my kids and I'm really lucky. Not every lawyer gets to do that. And, uh, it's not just Friday nights, but Friday nights is one of those times. Sunday mornings have changed a lot since we had kids. Uh, <laughs> Uh, So now my, both of my girls have activities on Sunday. So uh, they, I've become sort of a Sunday morning bus driver, uh, if you will. Uh, But that's also exciting because they have their own interests and they're getting to the age where it's not, you know, especially with very, very young kids, you have to sort of plan activities for them. Uh, When they start hitting five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, uh, the activities are already planned because it's what they want to do. And it's awesome to see them grow in doing what they need to do, but they can't they can't drive and they can't do it themselves. So that's my Sunday morning. Uh, if I'm not with my kids for some reason on a Sunday morning, which I confess has probably happened a handful of times in the last nine years. Um, you know, for me, that would be doing one of the leisure activities we talked about. So either reading or watching a British, British mystery. Um, (laughs) I really like to cook. So, uh, it would be cooking a really ornate brunch for friends. Um, Reminds me, I need to, I haven't, I haven't made my own smoked salmon locks recently. That would, that's a fun Sunday morning activity. Um, And I've gotten really into walking recently and exploring my own city. So that's, that's my other more recent Sunday morning um, if I have free time. So that's my answer.
0: Very sufficient answer. Do not worry. I love walking as well. I always get my 10,000 steps a day. It's, it's the, it's the benchmark always. Yes. but last question, I did sure. this at the end of every episode, Jonah. What are your words of wisdom for the aspiring law students,
1: the current law students, and the current legal professionals out there in the world? Yeah, I, I'm gonna do the legal thing and give you two answers. Um, I also ask a similar question at the end of mine, uh at my <laughs> podcast as well. Um, so one is I'm gonna echo something we talked about at the very top, right? And that is that careers only make sense going backwards. Um, and I think we live in a time that even is even more stressful and even more career driven than when I was coming up and starting law school over a little over a decade ago. Um, and as a result, I think people think that everybody has it planned from the beginning. Um, I also think as much as I love things like LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn gives that appearance because everybody's jobs are sort of listed by time, and there's no breaks between that like you should be able to plan that in advance. Um so my 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 to the extent, it's wisdom, I don't know, but the word the word that I would give for for people coming into the profession is that it's okay to not know what the end game is as long as you follow whatever North Star you have, right? So that could be doing something that you really care about. Um, That could be doing something that fulfills a goal in your life or something you need. Um, That could be providing for your family. Um, That could be a lot of different things, but don't feel like you have failed before you've started because it only makes sense going backwards. So that's one the other thing I would say to the future folks in our profession is that you are good enough to be a part of the profession. I mean, I think I have, We, you know, one of the amazing parts about teaching at my alma mater is it wasn't that long ago that I was sitting in the classroom that I now teach in, taking the exact same class. And the classroom that I teach in is so much more, the the, the wealth of experience And diversity in every sense of that term in my classroom, diversity of experience, geographic diversity, racial diversity, um, ethnic diversity, religious diversity, uh, all of, uh, and that's that's just the first 10 that came to my head is so much more than when I was in law school. And because lawyers play an important role in society, that's really important that the legal profession looks like the rest of society. And so even if, you think I don't belong here, or how did I get here, or I was the person that the dean accidentally let in. The number of people who have said that to me is like mind blowing. Is you belong, and don't forget. There's a great quote from um from Adlai Stevenson, uh, who, you know, who ran for vice president or ran for president many years. Uh, I think it's from the 50s at a graduation where he said, "When you leave, remember why you came." And for anybody who's just starting in the profession, remember when you start, why you came, because your story matters. We need you and we need the profession to grow. So that's my, that's my takeaway.
0: Well, Jonah, beautifully said, and that's the podcast. Jonah, thank you so much for coming on, spreading all this wisdom, spreading these experiences. And for everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in and I will see you in the next one.